Welcome to Literally Nothing Matters Podcast, where your new besties, Amanda and Caitlin, will chat openly about everything that no one is talking about, but everyone is secretly thinking. Together, we will debunk wellness trends, navigate relationships, and begin the journey to become the best versions of ourselves. At the end of the day, just remember, literally nothing matters. So grab your favorite beverage and meet us every Monday for our weekly date. Wait, did we just become best friends? Yep. Today's podcast guest is a registered dietitian and founder of Silver Street Nutrition, a practice that has helped nearly a thousand people end the chaotic cycle of dieting and embrace peace and balance around food, movement, and body image. She incorporates principles of intuitive eating, health at every size, mindfulness, and self-compassion into her nutrition counseling. She has a BS in nutrition and food science from the University of Maryland and a master's in clinical nutrition from New York University and has completed specialized training in eating disorders and body image counseling. She grew up on Long Island and has been living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, with her husband and dog since 2016. We definitely need to talk more about your dog. Um, In her spare time, she can be found spending time with friends and family, practicing guitar, cooking new dishes, or seeking out her next adventure, whether that's snowboarding, skateboarding, mountain biking, or something entirely new. So clearly she is much cooler than Caitlin and I. Welcome to the podcast, Laura Silver. Thank you so much. That's very (laughs) kind to say. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Welcome to Literally Nothing Matters. Um, We're really excited. We just had a nice convo between the two of us just about like our own experiences with body image and how, you know, our relationships with our body and food and all that has kind of like progressed and evolved throughout the year. So I feel like this conversation comes at a very pertinent time. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we all have a story with our bodies. So, so, so many people have been through it. It being, uh, yeah, complicated feelings about our bodies throughout growing up now as well. Uh, Yeah, it's tough to be a human person. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But conversations like this make it a little bit easier. So I'm excited to get into it. But why don't we start um, with just you telling us a little bit more about yourself, you know, beyond are you know a couple sentences that we had about you um you know what sparked a passion in wanting to help people with this stuff sure. anything of your own journey with it whatever yeah yeah absolutely um so my own experience as is the case i think for a lot of dietitians um is i did absolutely grow up with a really difficult relationship with food in my body uh which was present in my house uh and something i sort of inherited um yeah, which again is, is really, really common. And I was always pretty aware of, of myself as having a body and the way my body presented and how people looked at it and uh, always aware of how I could use food to control that, which I became more and more restrictive really as time went on in high school, which when you're really restrictive, you find yourself thinking a lot about food because, well, that's how the brain works. If you're not eating enough, then, or even if you're not not eating enough, but even just considering not eating enough, your brain will make you think more about food. Um, And it's really easy to end up going down uh, rabbit holes of nutrition online of like researching food and nutrition and weight and stuff like that. So anywho, that was sort of like the soup that I was in when I was 
thinking about what to do with my life um, as we're all starting to apply to college. And it felt really obvious that I should go study nutrition because I'm already obsessed with it, which is also something, by the way, that we kind of pat people on the back for, of course, like for being interested in health and nutrition, even though oftentimes it can come from this really negative, disordered place. Um, and so anywho, I was going to go to school and be the expert on uh, food and nutrition. And realistically, food and nutrition is oftentimes a, a moniker for weight loss. We think of the two as interchangeably, even though they're not. But at the time, that's how I thought about it. Uh, and then, yeah, I get to college and things got a little bit worse with my own relationship with food before they got better. But they did get better, but I did, you know, eventually I sort of decided I, I can't do this anymore. Um, I even remember one particular night in bed in my college dorm room, sort of going over the food uh, that I had eaten throughout the day, as I did every day, as a lot of people do, kind of going through my own uh, quote unquote mistakes of what I had eaten and deciding how I was going to fix them the next day. And I don't know, I don't remember why this particular night, but I remember thinking like, this is stupid. It was just finally a moment where I was like, what am I doing? Wasting all this energy. Um, but the moment of deciding to change and to heal isn't the same moment when you know what to do or how to help yourself or how to change. So I talked to therapists and to my partner at the time and my parents and to people, but things got better slowly until finally, and in all this time, by the way, I'm becoming a dietitian. Until finally, actually in grad school, ironically, in a weight loss class that I was taking, uh, I was introduced to the, the intuitive eating book, um, which is very much not about weight loss, which I can get to afterwards. And suddenly there was like a real roadmap. I mean, I think at the time when I was introduced to intuitive eating, I would have said I was healed and I was all better and I was normal with food. Looking back on it, that certainly wasn't quite the case. Things were a lot better, but not all better. I don't know if we ever really are, but intuitive eating made such a difference. And gosh, I mean, it, it was so clear that that was what I wanted to help people with. I wanted to help people get to this really calm, peaceful, happy place with food in their bodies using this incredible framework that is intuitive eating that I keep kind of referencing to and teasing. <laughs> um, but yeah, Can you dive more into that and explain for those of us who don't exactly know what intuitive eating is and maybe what that means to you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to say first and foremost, what intuitive eating is not because intuitive eating is not a diet. And I say that because everything under the sun is a freaking diet, even especially these days when we're all about like, it's not a diet, it's a wellness plan. Yeah. Well, intuitive it's fasting. a diet. Like, yeah. Exactly. Just stick intuitive <laughs> before whatever it is and it sounds okay, whatever that means. Uh, but a diet, of course, is any sort of rules or restrictions that we place on food. Um, and maybe we just say re restriction because it's, again, sort of not in fashion to say diet anymore. Uh, but the problem is they don't work. Diets don't lead to long-term weight loss, as we've been told that they do our whole lives. Over 95% of people who go on a diet don't maintain long-term weight loss. And over two-thirds of people who diet actually end up at a higher weight than they started out at. Wow. So it's more likely to lead to weight gain than it is weight loss. And restriction really consistently makes us think a lot more about food, like I was saying before, really preoccupied with food, have a lot more food guilt and stress and worry more likely to have cravings and overeat or binge eat, feel out of control with food, any all sorts of crap that isn't helping anyone feel any happier or healthier or like their bodies more. And so 
that's sort of the foundation of where intuitive eating, why intuitive eating exists, because intuitive eating really is about unlearning, following rules, you know, eating based on rules, eating based on dieting and relearning how to eat according to our own bodies. So what that actually means is, well, for one thing, it's about we eat when we're hungry and stop when we're full. The way we're all born into this world, you eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. You very much know that I'm sure as a mom, that I'm sure your baby does We never does stop that. eating. We're never full in this house. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, but, but we do, we do eventually get full and then we can be content and stop. We can teach or we can pretend, we can be trained to think that if I were to listen to hunger and fullness, I would just eat and eat and eat forever and ever. And that I need this set of, I need, you know, an amount of calories in a day, or I need a plan, a serving size in order to stop myself. I couldn't stop myself, but, but we can, and we do. Yeah. And intuitive eating reteaches us to trust our bodies, to trust ourselves to do that, which gosh, is so helpful in being flexible with our changing needs and schedule and preferences and all these different things. There's so much more to it as well, of course, not just hunger and fullness. You know, there's making peace with food, allowing all foods in our life and feeling comfortable with them. There's making movement joyful as opposed to something that feels like a chore, something we just have to do. There's coping with our emotions without food. Part of what I'm naming, by the way, are like, there are literally 10 principles of nutrition that anyone can Google and, and read. Um, but yeah, I've been talking for a while. <laughs> I'm going to pause for a second. No, it's how, all how good stuff. Um, let's chat a little bit more about the making peace with food. Cause I think that's something mm -hmm. that so many people get stuck on when thinking about intuitive eating because they feel like they don't have any willpower or, you know, if Ben and Jerry's ice cream was allowed in the house, they would eat it all day, every day, or, you know, just feeling mm -hmm. like they're just crazy around food. So how do you sure. kind of bridge that gap? Yeah, which I say this probably ad nauseum to my own clients, how normal all of this is. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so, so, so helpful for, for people to hear that probably all of my clients would say there is a long list of foods or, or maybe not long, but at least a list of foods that they feel like they couldn't keep at home because they would be out of control. Like that is such a, a common feeling. And we do, we tend to blame it on our, our quote unquote lack of willpower or being lazy or being gluttonous or being addicted to sugar is the one I hear about really often. Um, when in reality, I find for most people, a really big part of it is that it's driven by restriction. There's something called the restriction and binge eating cycle, uh, that when we restrict a food, like let's say it's Ben and Jerry's ice cream, we tell ourselves, I shouldn't eat this. I can't keep this around. I shouldn't ever have it or, or I'm only allowed to have it, let's say once a week or whatever it may be. We tend to think about it more, want it more. And then when we do eat it, we're much more likely to say, ah, screw it. A little is just as bad as a lot. I shouldn't have done this. I won't do it again. Or at least I'm not allowed to do it again until next week or whatever it may be. And that thinking, that sort of last supper mentality incentivizes us to eat more of it now and perhaps overeat it, which isn't even necessarily such a bad thing. What's problematic about that is because it's not eating without any connection to what our bodies actually want. Like we're not asking any of the questions do I like this? How much do I like this? Am I hungry for this now? Do I want this now? How much of this do I want now? And so what making peace with food is, is, well, a big part of that is what's called unconditional permission to eat, that we have to give ourselves unconditional permission to eat, meaning I am allowed to eat 
whatever I want, whenever I want. I don't have to make up for it. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to feel guilty. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And nearly every time I explain that to someone, I think they like sort of light up with like, <laughs> maybe a sense of excitement a little bit, but a lot of sense of it's terrifying. That sounds completely chaotic, right? This is the problem. If I could do that, wh whatever, just, yeah, I'm going to then eat Ben and Jerry's 24 seven. But what I find in reality is if I tell you, go buy Ben and Jerry's, keep it in your house, have it whenever you want. Well, for one thing, you will probably eat more of it in the short term. You might go through a pint the first night and then also go get another pint and do it again if you want to. If you want to, you don't have to have it whenever you want. And I promise that you will get to a place where you realize in your heart that this isn't going anywhere. I can eat this again tomorrow or later or the next day, which then allows us that space to think through. Do I want this right now? How much of this do I want? Uh, how does this taste? How might I feel after this? Um, what other needs might I not be meeting if I'm trying to have this? Right. But we kind of can't think about any of that when it feels like it's off limits and it feels restrictive. Does that make sense? How do we feel about that? Yeah, a hundred percent. I feel yeah. like I've definitely been in that cycle before. Yeah. And we've talked about that a lot because I feel like both of us have come to a place where we just accept that if we want to go and buy something at the store, it's stocked in our pantry at all mm -hmm. times. And I feel mm -hmm. really good about becoming aware of that. And it's something I want to instill in my daughter. So I want to have all the foods available. At the same time, I'm curious as to if you know anything about the science behind kind of the chemicals that are in the foods and if that has anything to do with our intuition and how we can kind of decipher between I just really am craving this because of my body wants it and my mind wants it and I'm going to have it. Or if it's chemically driven, if that's even a truth behind it. Does yeah, that that's sense? a good question. I, I think it does. I mean, you didn't use this word like sugar. Do you sort of mean like, is it for foods addictive? Is that kind of I'm what you mean? Or maybe not. Of, um, I've heard that there might be some chemicals that kind of get in your brain maybe it's with like food dye or I haven't I'm not really too into the sugar thing but I've heard a lot about like the food dye and even mm -hmm. just with children I'm thinking in terms of all of the processed food um sure and how that kind of can alter our intuition yeah well so okay so I have two parts of maybe an answer like okay one part being there are absolutely foods, especially processed and, and ultra processed foods, if we want to call them that, that are like crazy, highly palatable, right? That like hit in a way that's different from kind of anything in nature or can at least. Well, I'll talk about that in a second. With that said, to my knowledge, there isn't, there aren't any particular chemicals or dyes or anything like that, that like really change our brain chemistry. It doesn't mean that that's not possible, but to my knowledge, there isn't really, that doesn't really exist. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, I'd also like for that shoulders. to believe that yeah. that's true. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. I mean, and on that note too, by the way, I think there's so much fear around processed foods, understandably to some extent, like, you know, I, we've, we've had all these different phases of like, which foods are quote unquote bad, like fat was bad and then carbs are bad. And I think now we're in just processed is bad in all forms. Um, and I want to differentiate between like processed and ultra processed even because kind of everything we eat is processed to some degree. Um, and anywho, we're in this processed is bad. And I think along with that can be this real fear that our 
that there are all these secret chemicals that are secretly killing us. Now, I'm not saying like the government does everything perfectly, but the, the government does regulate uh, what is allowed to be in our food and everything that's in our food is has been deemed safe and does have to pass standards and all that good stuff. Anywho, um, as far as the hyper palatable side of things, it's tough. I mean, it, it can be a little bit harder with some foods than others that we, we can end up craving them more and we enjoy them more and it can be a little bit harder to stop. But I always want to really empower people that you always have the choice. You are always in control. Yes, it can be harder to stop eating, let's say, a bag of Doritos than an apple because they they might hit differently in your brain to some extent. But you're still in control. It's still your responsibility, which I don't mean that to sound like um, it's a your fault thing. But I think sometimes we can use that as an excuse that I just couldn't stop. Like we... We can be present in our bodies and, you know, notice how we feel and notice what we're enjoying. I don't know if I'm really answering the question. Yeah, no, you are. I feel like- These are my thoughts and feelings about it. I appreciate it. I think that you're kind of speaking to the part of it's not solely logical. It can be also like a sense of mindfulness along with Mm -hmm. logic. You know, you have to be really aware of your body. And I think- sometimes we can't attune to that. So it's a layered, a layered feeling, um, a layered sense of decision-making that can go pretty deep. It's not just a simple, a simple fix. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It can be more challenging. Good. Yeah. All of that. Can you speak a little bit to the whole um, sugar addiction thing? Cause like, that is definitely something that like, you know, you see articles written about it. You see wellness influencers talking about it. Half Mm -hmm. of the clients that I meet with at the gym during their like onboarding questionnaire sessions all talk about their addiction to sugar. So I would love to know your take on that. Yeah. Like what we were talking about. I'm curious, do either of you feel like sugar is addictive? Whether or not you think it actually is, do you feel that way in your lives? No, I think I used to think it was until sure. I learned more about intuitive eating and started practicing <laughs> that more in my sure. life and then realized that maybe it's not like okay. actually addictive. I mean, it's exactly. That mental that's, yeah. restriction thing. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, Gold star. I, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Well done. Well done. A plus. <laughs> um, yeah. Sugar absolutely can feel addictive, but there's a difference between something feeling addictive and actually being physiologically addictive. Um, and the short answer is is no. The research doesn't support that sugar is actually addictive. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have probably heard the headline that sugar is as addictive as cocaine or some some version of that. Have you guys heard that before? Yeah, hmm. totally. Um, and so I think that that study is quite sort of a perfect example of our misunderstanding about how sugar seems addictive but isn't that there was this study I honestly can't remember when but in the last like 10 or 15 years um, that they did on rats that they provided rats with both sugar and cocaine like as an option they had like little levers that they put their baby little paws on and they could get either one of them and that the rats preferred the sugar to the cocaine whoa crazy finding sugar is more addictive than cocaine right like that's the headline first of all 
how sort of sad that the like the our conclusion from that is that oh that's terrible sugar is more addictive than cocaine as opposed to how wonderful the rats preferred sustenance to drugs like right. how wonderful that they have this innate preference for survival and also like the comparison of us to rats like i get totally. it you can't just like jump in and do all of these crazy trials on humans but also like maybe not a total um <laughs> end game result <laughs> completely my goodness yeah it's nuts and also now i'm realizing it's rats or is it mice it's probably mice i don't know anyway what's the difference anyway yeah. anywho? um probably it's one that people are thinking up in this screaming at this moment anyway <laughs> Cancel. Um, yeah 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 but uh anywho what actually happened um with the study is that they found that when they provided an unlimited amount of cocaine uh the rats would do cocaine mm-hmm. until like and this is they had a limited amount of cocaine and no sugar that again the rats or the mice whatever the heck they were uh would do cocaine until they died if they were given unlimited amounts of uh, sugar, they didn't. They didn't continuously eat the sugar forever and ever and ever until they exploded or, you know, or whatever might happen. They stopped. And the learning really from that is that when something, I didn't actually say in the first part of this, that the the both the, the sugar and the cocaine were restricted in the initial one, in the initial sense, that when the it was restricted, they continued eating for as long as they possibly could, for as long as sugar was available, they continued eating, perhaps because somehow they knew it was going to be taken away versus when it was completely unlimited, they stopped. And that's exactly what I was saying before in terms of how this unconditional permission actually allows us to stop, which makes a lot of sense evolutionarily and against in a survival sense that if you knew that food wouldn't be available forever, of course it makes sense that you would eat as much as you possibly could to gear up for when there isn't food versus if you knew food would be available forever, then right, I can come and go as I please. So, so anywho, that's kind of, yeah, go ahead. Thinking of family members who have different health concerns, mm-hmm. one of my family members has diabetes and I'm thinking out loud right now. So correct me as I, as I go, sure. but is it because this person limits themselves to so, like they got diabetes later on, meaning that they had in the doctors had said like, you know, you ate too much of something of sugars sure. or whatever it is. I don't know the science really behind it. Was it because that person restricted themselves and then would binge on it? Is that usually how that kind of transpires? There's, there's so many different, of course. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many layers and there's so yeah. many different options. Totally. Um, I think we tend to think of type one diabetes as the, it's not your fault kind and type two diabetes is the, it's your fault kind. Yeah. And because which, uh, for a little bit of background type one, you are, you're born, born with, and, um, it just is like it. Yeah. Versus the uh, type two, there is more environmental factor. Um, it is something that you are probably born predisposed or or definitely born predisposed and then environmental factors environmental could be partly diet can bring that out and one part of it and lifestyle yeah like one part of it is the way we eat absolutely like eating uh too much quote unquote too much like what does quote too much mean who knows that's genuinely different for everyone but eating too much sugar on a consistent basis 
is shown or is related to what's called insulin resistance. Um, and insulin resistance is at the core of type two diabetes. Um, yeah, I'm going to spare all like the details of what all that means for the moment. But there's a million other things that can lead to, to this insulin resistance thing, like, like an activity like stress, uh, which stress can come from a million different parts of our lives, of course, both uh, from work and from all sorts of socioeconomic stuff. Um, yeah, it's just so much more complicated than just that person binged on sugar. But if that is part of it, if part of it is binging on sugar, which can be part of leading to diabetes, absolutely. Is that because that person restricted? And maybe that may be part of it, certainly. Um, but I do recognize I, I'm sort of oversimplifying in all of this that like, as though the only reason for overeating something or feeling out of control is restriction when there's lots of other potential reasons why we overeat. I think that's so important for doctors to share as well as instead of it feeling blameful, if you down the line end up getting something physical like this, instead of them saying you ate too much sugar and all of, you know, just mm -hmm. my unaware living they get this disease and I'm thinking in my head, oh, she, it's because she ate too much sugar and she did this and that. But it's like you're saying it can tr contribute to so many other things that aren't necessarily toxic. Sure. Well, and on top of that, too, our automatic reaction to she ate too much sugar is that like she's a bad person for that mm -hmm. or that she ate too much sugar. It must be because she's lazy or gluttonous or ignorant or stubborn or she doesn't care about herself. She doesn't care about her health. Like we make all these terrible assumptions. I'm not saying you are, but what, you know, we can, and we're taught to, I think we all do to some extent, a little bit, mm -hmm. make all these character judgments on a person. If it's true that they have eaten a lot of sugar and that did contribute to their diabetes when, well, for one thing, we didn't know the factors that led up to that to like why they were eating that amount of sugar. And also even though, who cares <laughs> whether we do or don't right. know, like that's not my business to, um, to judge you on. Yeah. Right. It has nothing to do with that person's morality, yeah. <laughs> but we do exactly. do that. And now I feel like you see that, like it's, that's always been around or at least for a really long time. Right. And now you see it in like the clean girl aesthetic, kind of like, you know, the it girl, yes. you know, TikToks of, <laughs> You wake mm -hmm. up and you, 4 yeah, you're doing your five to nine before your nine to five. You're yeah. drinking your green juices. You're being like, quote, quote, like perfect. My filtered water my yeah. to get my, my system going to detoxify right. <laughs> before I put anything in this vessel of mine. Yeah. Very like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Which is our like completely linking our morality and value and worth with both the way that we look as well as our different habits and behaviors and we act as though doing all of the crap that you were both just saying that i've heard of <laughs> half of them and probably not the other half that like yeah. those are unequivocally the right things to do that they and they are good and that they make you good as a person yeah oh it's so it's so strange uh to realize it too like it's so mm -hmm. we're, we're so um surrounded by all of this and we live in diet culture and we're born into it and we've heard all of this forever that it's so easy to, to not even take a step back and realize how 
wacky it all is and it doesn't all have to be necessarily true and when you do it's just like whoa wait a second this is just marketing <laughs> like, yeah. all of it is just marketing literally um so is that something that you help some of your clients with like helping them to decouple their like value and like morality and all of that stuff that we were just talking about from their body image and their food choices or their body size and their food choices like how do you go about that obviously it's a long process and very um involved but any of course but yeah that's a really huge part of of this work of this process um and the first step to really any sort of change is just building an awareness, building awareness. And this is something that anyone listening can do right now is just start to notice, how do I label foods good and bad? Like, how, how does this come up for me in the day? When I'm eating, am I labeling whatever this is good and bad? Is that good or bad label changing what I'm going to eat or how I'm going to eat it? And we don't even have to change anything as a result of these observations, observations rather, just starting to notice, like, how does this good and bad affect me? How might I be labeling myself good and bad? Um, so that's always sort of a step one that I talk to people about is, is just building that awareness of, of how this shows up in your life. Um, we'll also do a lot of nutrition education around food, around um, debunking fact from fiction, because there's a lot of really crappy information out there. What a surprise. Uh, and really trying to create less fear around food. Like there's also just so much fear mongering. Um, Again, like along with the good and bad is this binary of foods are either it's a super food that is going to heal you and fix you, or it is a, uh, you know, terrible food that's going to kill you and give you diabetes and all these terrible things and helping people realize that that really isn't the case. Um, That truly no food is is simply good or bad. It's, it's so much more complicated than that. Um, And then really we have to just learn by experience, by doing it, it being eating the food we've deemed bad and seeing that nothing bad happens. Nothing bad meaning like no one particular food is going to make you anything, make you sick or fat or unhealthy or uh, unhappy or, or whatever it may be. And that's kind of back to that whole making peace with food thing that we kind of can't just logic and think our way into believing it. We have to actually experience it and show ourselves that this is true. Um, and that takes time. And, and there's always challenges along the way that that we have to talk about as they come up. Um, but yeah, these are some of the steps. It's hard. This this part of things takes a really long time to change. Or I guess it doesn't have to. That maybe sounds pessimistic, but it certainly doesn't happen overnight. What are some simple tools that we could say to either ourselves or to our friends that are really struggling with this type of situation? Sure. So, I mean, I think the, the first thing being like talking about that, that awareness building, talking about the observing. Um, but what do we do, let's say, like in the moment when we are feeling really guilty about or really stressed about eating something? Um, how do we help ourselves? Is that kind of like a question maybe yeah just how can we be a support system instead of there's so many things that we're so normalized to say you know when people are talking mm-hmm. about foods in a way of oh yeah but I ate so much instead of saying 
oh, I I did the same thing. It was so bad. I I mm-hmm. I love yeah, hate being too. So bad. Yeah, I'm being <laughs> so bad. Oh my gosh, I ate a whole block of cheese, you know, yeah. and just like indulging in the conversation yeah. in a sense of trying to make them better by kind of making the situation sure. I don't know yeah. more comfortable and like oh I do I, I'm so bad too um mm-hmm. how can we change our narrative because yeah. we're so inclined to just continue that cycle um what are some easy things that come to mind maybe of changing the dialogue yeah I mean first of all like why do we do that why do we why are we so inclined to say oh yeah me too I hate my this right like the the mean girls thing of everyone yes. standing in the mirror exactly. or like yeah I was so bad last night too we're all you know we're all gonna go for a run tomorrow in the morning to fix this right we do that to connect with each other we do it to to make each other feel better like we don't do that because we're all terrible people we do that because we're we want to be kind in this we're just going about it in the wrong way um but really being firm and, well, of course, not starting those conversations, not being the first one to say and not saying any of that in the first place, right? Just role modeling that, you know, if we're all going out for burgers, let's say, for example, that nobody needs to comment on whether this is good or bad, you know, like no one needs to comment on how we're going to fix this. And, I, you know, if we if we actually believe that or even if you don't believe that, pretend, right? That, you know, not saying it in the first place and when, if and when maybe your friend says something about being a bad or fixing it the next day. I mean, certainly it would be really wonderful and impressive to be able to say, that's really not how I want to think about this, or I don't, I don't think that's true. We don't have to make up for it. Our bodies can handle eating a burger and carrying on with our lives. Um, you know, if we can have some sort of response to challenge that person, that'd be wonderful, but also a lot to expect of people. It's really hard to do that in the moment. And I'm such um, a people haven't... pleaser. I want to just make them yeah. comfortable and make them feel like they're not a bad person because I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yeah, challenging our friends can also be awkward. I mean, that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid the awkwardness. Like, I honestly think another strategy just to give people permission to do this is to like, just sort of not acknowledge it to an extent and change yeah. the subject. Like, I, I agree really to don't that. Think yeah. That's what I've been doing that. lately is when anyone comments on their body, just kind of letting it be there. And it's yeah. kind of awkward at times, but I, I have to learn how to just let it be. You know, I, I can't fix people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's challenging for me as a person, um, but I can't make them feel better by making me less either. Yeah. <laughs> Which totally. Is- which is a challenging aspect of who I am. I'm like, I will be terrible. You can be better than me. As a people pleaser also. (laughs) We're working on it. We're working on it. Yes. Yeah, it's hard. Would you have less so of like us helping friends, but more so like just because summer can bring about so much of you know, the body image stuff because you're going to the beach, you're going on vacation, mm-hmm. pool parties, barbecues, all the stuff. Um, any tips or practices to kind of mitigate some of those negative body feelings? Like even if it's just like mm-hmm. how to be present in the moment and not let those feelings ruin your day, even if the feelings are still there under the surface or mm-hmm. there later when you get home, you know? Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite personal body mantras that's gotten me through a lot is it is what it is. 
it's a really helpful one. Like that is what it is meaning like, this is what my body is today, right? Like, especially I can imagine a lot of times of getting, you know, putting on a bathing suit and going to the beach and having all these racing thoughts about comparing myself to whomever I'm going to the beach, their bodies and worrying about uh, sitting in the chair and how I'm going to be bent over and seeing myself and right. Just, yeah. Bathing suits and beaches are hard for bodies, yeah. body image. Um, and the simple mantra of it is what it is. This is what my body is. I cannot change it in this moment. My stressing about it won't change it. There's nothing I can do that will change the way my body looks. All I can do is carry on and try to exist as I can. Um, and something I talk to people about a lot that I think is underscores that this site is what it is concept is sort of moving away from a place of self-objectification of like body as object versus subject. So what I mean by that is, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about like the male gaze, like men objectifying women and yeah, treating us as objects, but not as much about how we tend to objectify ourselves, how we think of ourselves as objects and said in a different way, how we tend to prioritize thinking about how others will experience us versus how we will experience the world. And so part of that, it is what it is in my mind is this is what my body looks like for today, whether I like it or not, it is what it is. Can I focus less on how others will experience me and more on how I'm going to experience the day, how I'm going to experience being with my friends, being in the water, having a beer, eating some watermelon, like whatever it might be. Um, and that's something I talk to people about all the time. Uh, again, can we notice when we're objectifying ourselves, notice when we're treating ourselves as of something who has a body and can I be more in my body, which is kind of like being more mindful as you were saying before. I love that so much like experiencing the world not okay how's everyone else experiencing me and I feel like also thinking about how you are in a situation like thinking of your friends like I'm never going to the beach with my friends and being like oh my god look at her rolls as she sits down and all that bathing suit's not looking good on her like none of us mm -hmm. are thinking that and if your friends are then they're shitty friends and like they gotta go but, and it's hard to remember that when you're in the, you know, thick of your own body image stuff, but I feel like that's a good thing to remember too. Like your friends yeah. want to have a good time with you. Mm -hmm. It is so true. Thinking about going out with people. I've never thought of anyone else's body except for mine. Yes. <laughs> yes. Seriously. My goodness. And no one is looking at you the way that you look at you. Yeah. Yeah. My God. I mean, like, what, for instance, when you look in the mirror, I bet, and you don't have to say what your parts are, but your eyes immediately zoom to whatever your parts are that you are most insecure about and most unsure of. And we so blow them out of proportion in our own minds and assume that people are also looking at ourselves in that way. Their eyes are zipping to that place too. But of course not. I mean, I don't think any of us do that when we're looking at anyone else. When I'm looking at someone, I don't know what their, you know, quote unquote problem areas are that they feel insecure about. And I see them or I, I think I'd like to think that I see them as a whole person. We see ourselves as whole people too. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I know. We go on and on and on about that. <laughs> um, And then similar to that, I feel like summer is such a time of like, you're out about and you're celebrating. And like I said, like barbecues, pool parties, all the stuff. I feel like so many people, as I have also in the past, get so caught up in that like restrict 
go crazy on the weekends and then have major food guilt for a few days. So you restrict again and then go crazy Mm -hmm. on the weekends. So how would you suggest people start to like deal with that food guilt and like mitigate that food guilt a little bit so they can sure away from that cycle from that like 80 20 cycle yeah that's all I'm thinking about yeah. is from when people say mm-hmm. they, they go crazy 20 percent of the time and then they're very balanced that's like yeah. a trendy word right yes totally. balanced 80 percent of the time yeah we just totally which do people say cheat day anymore like is 80 20 replaced cheat day or is that I feel like in, in most circles yes yeah. I feel like still the it's so really funny like bodybuilder fitness mm-hmm you know cheat day it's still cheat day it's still cheat day maybe right. okay <laughs> totally is how I feel about it yeah yeah I would agree with that I mean one important uh step in getting rid of food guilt is believing that we don't need it in the first place right because like why do we experience guilt and why do we hold on to it well not I don't I genuinely don't think because we're all just masochists and we all hate ourselves and want to be mean it's because we we think that the guilt is productive and helpful and if I don't hold myself accountable via guilt if I'm not mean to myself then I'll never change I'll never be better next time I'm just going to do it again next weekend and so let me again slap myself on the wrist now so that I won't do it again but does that work no, no, it doesn't work that way. I mean, maybe for like a day, uh, maybe. But no, it's so much more likely to keep us stuck in the cycle to then, you know, we feel really guilty and to feel like, oh, I have to be even more strict next time and be more restrictive, which is more likely to lead to more eating. And, you know, okay, yeah, so on and so forth. So again, step one is just acknowledging that the guilt isn't productive which can be hard to believe and hard to acknowledge. Um, But anywho, from there, I actually find to be really helpful to when we're trying, we notice our guilty thoughts and we're trying to get rid of them to first acknowledge, I see you thought, thank you for trying to help. Thank you for trying to, thank you brain for trying to help me um, make choices. But this is an old way of thinking that really isn't helpful, actually. I'm going to choose another way. I'm okay as I am. Like some version of that. I find some version of acknowledging the thought really helps. Um, as opposed to just saying like, no, go away. <laughs> like, I see you thought. I see you're there. I see you're trying to help me. But this really isn't all that helpful. And then replacing it with something that you do like. And the annoying part of all of this is like, you're going to have to rinse and repeat probably like five minutes later. Mm-hmm. You don't get to just kind of like acknowledge the thought and replace it. And now we're done. That's just not the way our brains work. It'd be really cool if they did. Uh, but you'll probably have those same guilty thoughts. Like, I mean, maybe less than like in two minutes, it, it's pretty likely they're going to come back and then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. And eventually it stops, but we have to be pretty persistent about it for that to happen. I think that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, that's so true about everything of your thoughts, right? Um, of just having to come back to that idea of trying to change the narrative and just being strong and sticking through and just reminding yourself of the positive and just continuing that that cycle. And it is really hard, but it's so important. Um, and just remaining on like the 
the brighter side of things, I guess. Yeah. Like making a choice, like clearly the way that things were going before weren't working because it was just repeating over and over again and you were miserable. So this is hard, but I want to make a choice to make things different eventually. So. And they can be, and they can be different. Like I, we have to have actual hope and believe that it can get better even if you haven't experienced it yet really and like because it can feel so hard to just keep doing just keep reminding yourself over and over again when it feels like nothing is changing but it can it really can and will change especially if we're not lying to ourselves like it, mm-hmm. I think sometimes too a, a pitfall can be that like that's part of why I was saying we have to actually believe that the guilt isn't productive mm-hmm. if we still sort of kind of hold on to I should probably be guilty about this. And we're just kind of pretending and lying to ourselves that everything's okay. Then we're not going to actually change our belief. We're not going to actually feel better about it. That's the thing with the change of the underlying belief. And then the thoughts can start to change. Well, that's such a bigger picture too of like thoughts become things. So if you're really, your thought is truly a different thought than when you're forcing in your head, you know, like there's some back, like you can't decide one day. I'm just going to be okay with my body, you know, yeah. like you have to do the work. And mm-hmm. I think some people do the whole like fake it till you make it thing and just lie to themselves about the truth. And you're in the same place tomorrow that you were yesterday because you're not facing reality and doing the really hard work. Um, and all of this can be really difficult. And it's like, you got to work at it. Um, and it can be really emotional. You know, it's tied to so much more than just looking at a piece of food. Um, it's much bigger than that. Yeah, people want a quick fix. Yeah. Also, our society of quick fixes. I know. I know. It'd be so nice if there was a quick fix. Yeah, just a button. <laughs> fixes are the like, best. I don't want to feel like this anymore. Thank you. <laughs> there are exactly. therapists and coaches that help you with these types of things. Though. Yeah. So that's probably the quickest fix true. you can get are professionals. <laughs> Why, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> There's also a lot of, uh, bullshit artists who will tell you they have their quick fixes of course because they're looking for some money a million percent um there's also a lot of other things on the market quick fixes what are your thoughts on ozempic (laughs) oh geez (laughs) oh the big question of like right now really oh my goodness i have so many thoughts layered and layered yeah, so many layered thoughts that um, I, I haven't yet created like a, a cute soundbite or like a, not that any of this <laughs> okay. has been It doesn't cute, have to be but cute. Like, I just mean like, it's like my thoughts are very much a work in progress. Yeah. Um, that I think, and this has been said before, that Ozempic and how popular it's become is such a sad reminder that we're not as far along in the body positivity movement as I think we thought that we were. Yeah. Um, but anywho one side of my feelings about Ozempic is that it's not a fixing anything really like so the way Ozempic works is it reduces our appetites it makes you more full quickly um it also has all sorts of uh GI side effects oftentimes like nausea and heartburn and stuff like that and so people often don't want to eat as much because of those side effects but they also to have fewer cravings and don't want to eat as much because of the way it affects our hormones. It makes you more full more quickly. Rarely is that the problem. Like 
the problem, and, and I don't want to say, not the problem of weight, because weight isn't a problem in the first place. And that's a whole other conversation that we're pathologizing um, weight and being in a larger body. But the issue for most of my clients and like why they're not able to lose weight is not because they have like voracious appetites. They just can't stop eating okay. in large parts because of restriction and because of the things we've been talking about that uh, we're disconnected from our bodies. We're not tuning into our own hunger and fullness and paying attention. We have these really crappy relationships with food and Ozempic isn't helping that. It's not changing your relationship with food. It's just making food seem less appealing, which also how sad, how sad that food is yeah. less appealing and that it's going to be less enjoyable and we're not going to want it as much. I mean, what, what food is such a beautiful, incredible part of life. Now, with all of that said, I respect why people want to go on it and why they do go on it. I mean, we live in a world that makes it really difficult to exist in a larger body. And I don't blame anyone for wanting a fix given we don't actually have another solution yeah. diets don't work right the way the, the the quote unquote natural way of just eat less and move more doesn't work over 95 percent of people don't maintain long-term weight loss and so ozempic is more effective than the alternative at losing weight and again i don't blame people for wanting that because it can be easier to exist in this world in a smaller body because of fat phobia, because of the world we live in. It shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't have to be that way, but it is. Oh my God, I have so many other feelings about how it actually affects our health and implements it. I'm going to pause though for a second. Yeah. What are your no. thoughts? What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, very, very similar to yours. It makes me sad that people feel like they still have to go to these extremes, but I also have so much empathy for it too, because like you said, the world doesn't make it easy, especially if you think of, you know, all these people that are like in the public eye that are for sure all taking it, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't blame them when they're every time they open up their Instagram or, you know, sure. a tabloid or whatever, like, are we still reading tabloids? I don't know. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, everyone totally. is like, oh my God, she's huge and disgusting. If you like ever get photographed mm -hmm. at a wrong angle or anything. But then it's also like, oh, but you are all the ones that could be making the changes to a more positive world. But I don't blame you at the same time. I don't know. It's hard. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I hold both of them. Yeah, it's it's really challenging. The other thing that people are learn think people know more and more now is like it's it's not a quick fix in the sense right. that it's not you have to take it forever. Yeah. You don't have to take it forever. Of course you don't have to, but just like the the research is pretty clear that if once you stop taking it, you're gonna regain the lost weight, right. which is so okay. Again, let's not say really like that's a terrible thing. Right. Exactly. Or you can take it for the rest of your life. And there's lots of medications that people take for their whole lives. And it's okay to take medication. Like there are lots of people with diabetes who have to be on it as epic for right. their whole lives or whatever. But just to acknowledge like that you are sort of, it's it's similar to a diet in a way because diets, I keep saying diets don't work. They, they do work in the short term. Nearly any diet can help you to lose weight. Just the, the keeping it off part. The other side is we just assume that 
by getting smaller, by losing weight, we are inherently helping our health. And it's not that simple. It doesn't always work that way. Losing weight doesn't mean necessarily that you are getting healthier. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a concept to explore too, just in itself is the fact that sometimes there's such a societal pressure to look and be a certain way, but it's like, your body is not supposed to look like my body, you know? And I think when Mm -hmm. some people are start to kind of explore this, their body will change, but it's like, that's the way your body's supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to have Mm -hmm. curves. You're supposed to have whatever your body is presenting as, and that's the healthiest option for you. Um, And that's hard to kind of accept sometimes. Yeah. 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 It's the opposite of what we're told. We're always like, we are told very clearly that there is a look of health and fitness that you are supposed to, if you are, don't look this way, then you are not healthy and fit. And that's just not true. Uh, yeah. There's, there's the wonderful health at every size movement. That's really trying to, to push back against this, um, which is not saying that everyone is healthy at every size and size and weight don't matter, but rather than you just can't tell someone's health by looking at their size, that people can be healthy at, at every size. And that is true from the research that you can be healthy mm-hmm. at all sorts of different sizes uh, and shapes and all these different things. Um, yeah. So, so again, like gaining weight doesn't hundred percent mean that you are getting less healthy and losing weight doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting more healthy. Like less I feel like the, oh, no. the, the sound bite for nearly everything in nutrition and probably everything in the world is like, more complicated than that yeah yeah it's almost always the answer which is so annoying and boring yeah right it's not like a 10 second tiktok of your you know this tip that's going to change your life it's like well it's actually very different for every single person and takes a lot of trial and error but good luck (laughs) my my husband is a marketer and we're always kind of like uh going back and forth about yeah him wanting me to be so much more um firm and confident I guess about like you do this this and this and then you'll be successful yeah and I'm always just like that's but that's not life and that's not how it works and oh I should probably speak like you in order to sell and but I'm not yeah (laughs) And I was like, I hate that. I hate that language. Totally. Yes. And too many people use that language doing the same type of work that you do. Mm -hmm. Like that it's, it's false promises. It's not that simple. So I think yeah, Yeah. people will fall fit for it, but also at the end of the day, more people will value that um, honesty. (laughs) So I hope so. I hope so um yeah we'll we'll see with time and we'll tell but so far so good I love it um well we're approaching the hour so if you have any other last tidbits to help our listeners live you know as present as possible this summer to enjoy food and enjoy living in their bodies Mm -hmm. and you know feel a little less guilt around it all yeah, well, my, my absolute favorite um, body mantra that goes along with the whole it is what it is kind of thing that I was saying before uh, comes from an organization called More Than a Body uh, is your body is an instrument, not an ornament. Your mm-hmm. body is an instrument, not an ornament. 
And I love to think about that as often as I possibly can when I have, I mean, it doesn't really come up now. I'm so grateful for it, but I encourage people to, and it doesn't never happen when you have uh, guilty thoughts about food or your body. Yeah. My body is an instrument that is here to allow me to experience all of the wonders of the world, uh, to eat delicious food, to be with my friends, to learn new things, to help others, to take a walk down the street and to sit and watch TV, to do all these things. It is not an ornament for everyone else to look at. That is not the function of my body. Oof. And I love that. Wow. I love that so much. I love that. Right in the feels. <laughs> well, thank you yeah. so much. Can you hype yourself up a little bit? Where thank can you. everybody find you? And then we'll link to everything. Yeah. I'll, I'll do my very best with my, my marketing voice. Yes. <laughs> what are your three um, promises like... for everyone? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Kill me. But um, <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. I really do appreciate it. This has been a whole lot of fun. Um, yeah. Silver Street Nutrition. Uh, you can find me at silverstreetnutrition.com. Uh, there's lots of really good information in there. Uh, you can also on my website, click to discover or click to schedule a 25 minute discovery call, which would be a phone call with myself to talk through what's specifically going on with you and what your needs are. And I'll explain more about how we'll actually work towards your specific goals, uh, as well as all the details of packages and prices, and then potentially book something from there. Um, so yeah, that would be a really awesome next step. Uh, or you can also just go to my website and email me, of course, if you have a question or want to say hi or whatever it may be. I'm here for it. Awesome. Fabulous. Love it. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks again. You. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs>